Just a little friendly reminder out there to all you listeners, make sure to subscribe to the National Land Realty Podcast. No matter what platform you use, there is a subscribe button. Make sure to click that. That's how we measure our success and measure the value that we bring to the table. Welcome to episode number 73 of the National Land Realty Podcast, where we discuss all things land. Our goal here is to inform, educate, and entertain those of you who own land or are interested in the buying and selling of land throughout the United States. My name is Mac Christian, and I am the Chief Marketing Officer here at National Land Realty. I'll be your host for this episode. This episode is something that is personal for me. Chronic wasting disease just hit my area of the United States, and it's something that I have a lot of questions about. Now, whether you've had it in your area for years or you've never been around it, you likely have questions as well. Dr. Michael Chamberlain is a Terrell Professor of Wildlife Ecology and Management at Warnell School of Forestry and Natural Resources at the University of Georgia. And among his many credentials, he's a field researcher for chronic wasting disease. I'm here today with Dr. Chamberlain and National Land Realty agent Steve Chapman to get as much information as possible on this topic. If you're like me, you have questions about this disease. This episode is extremely informational. Now sit back and enjoy. All right, so we are sitting here today with Michael Chamberlain, and I got I got Steve Chapman here with me. Steve, you're kind of jumping into here too because you got questions as well. But uh, we're talking about chronic wasting disease, and it just so happens we just talked to you about about turkeys, Michael, and and uh, I it was when we were talking about turkeys, I didn't realize how involved you were with other things outside of turkeys, and you happen to be uh, working on several chronic wasting disease projects. I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit about your background with chronic wasting disease and and how in what capacity that you've worked with it. Yeah, I mean, for sure. So I guess my first experience with it just comes from the standpoint that I'm a deer hunter. And you know, CWD is something that deer hunters should be paying attention to. Um I primarily have hunted in the South, but I have traveled into areas where CWD was endemic, meaning, you know, it's been there for some time. And so I kind of paid attention to the disease and how it was spreading across the U.S. And then, oh gosh, maybe uh, five or six, maybe seven years ago, uh, I was asked to, I've conducted deer research for many years, but a handful of years ago, I was I was asked to submit a proposal to Arkansas Game and Fish Commission um, for a large project that they were planning uh, in Arkansas, which we can talk about if you'd like. And and so I put together a team of people, as did other researchers, and submitted a proposal, a competitive proposal to, to Arkansas Game and Fish, and we were selected for receipt of the funding. Uh, it's the largest project actually that Arkansas has ever, has ever funded. And that kind of threw me into the CWD research. And then, and then since then I've, I've become involved in, in another field study that, that is focused on trying to understand how CWD is spreading. Um, which as we can talk about is one of the, I mean, we know how it's transmitted, but we don't really understand how it's spreading across the landscape. So, so that's kind of that's kind of it. I, I kind of look at CWD through two lenses. I, I I look at it through the lens of a researcher, but I'm also a, a you know a fanatical deer hunter, and and therefore it's concerning to me because uh, CWD changes the landscape from a deer hunting perspective when it's detected without question. So let's start from the 101 level and just talk. I want to just ask you, what is it? Yeah, so CWD is just a it's just a neurological degenerative disease. Um, it's called a, a prion disease, and and what a prion is is just a, a protein that becomes misshaped. It it folds, and therefore it it accumulates in the brain and causes neurological problems. Uh, basically. Um, it's found in wild cervids like deer and elk and uh, moose. I mean, there's a number of cervids that that have CWD in their you know in their populations, and 
because it's it's a neurological disease, um, it's fatal. It's 100% fatal. Uh, once deer contract the disease, they they don't survive it. So um, it, it's a it's a it's a doozy in the disease world, if you will. Uh, anything that's 100% fatal, and particularly neurological disorders like that, it, it's problematic. And it's so historically, and this is this is just a point of curiosity. It's discovered in Colorado, right? In, yep. uh, during a research study where they have it's in the uh, what is it 1960? Oh, what is it? I think it was 67. I was going to say 67. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it's discovered in 67, but they have mule deer in a pen and they know that they had sheep in the nearby area. So there's a suspicion that it, they, it's mule deer contracting scrapie, but they don't know. And so I, I guess the question is, you know, is that really the, the discovery of it? Did it exist in the United States before this point, or is this really ground zero? I think most logical people would conclude it was here before then it just wasn't detected and and you know you fast forward from the 60s i I believe it was discovered first in the wild in the early 1980s and and then you know as states started testing more of course it was detected in more areas and and then you know you look at today and now it's it's been detected i believe in 31 states now and and a number of Canadian provinces that occurred. It's been detected overseas in Scandinavian countries and South Korea. Uh, and as we continue to, to test more, we're, as, as you can imagine, we're detecting it in more and more places. And, but I think it's, I, I mean, to me, it's logical to conclude it, it was, it was there before 1967. It was simply not detected. Do you think it was as prevalent as before, or is this something that's becoming more prevalent, or is it just the fact that we're being more observant? Honestly, I don't, I don't know the answer to that. I suspect it's a combination of, of all of that. I suspect because we're testing more and it's become such a concern that it's being detected where otherwise it would not be because there was not a lot of surveillance going on. But what we are also seeing is that in some areas, the prevalence is extremely high, you know, more than one in four um, animals are infected with the disease. And that, you know, that's, that's pretty incredible. And and we're actually seeing in some areas, like in some of the, the areas in Arkansas, the prevalence is even higher than that, that, that a large percentage of the herd is infected with the disease. And of course that that's problematic because it's, it's hundred percent fatal. And, and a lot of what we're learning about, about this disease is concerning um, because again, it, it's um, it's a disease based on a protein and proteins are shed into the environment. And they're trans, they can be transmitted from one animal to the next, which we can talk about. And, and therefore it's resistant, right? It's, it's in the environment all of the time. And that that's problematic. So when, and just to explain it to say anybody listening, when we're talking a protein, you're talking just a protein molecule that is shed from the animal yep. in the environment. Yep. Another animal picks it up either by eating something, drink water, maybe it's. And from what I've understood, the protein is you almost can't get rid of it. I mean, it, it's burned. It's extremely it. resistant. Yes. Right. Yeah. And, and and it's transmitted. You know, if you think about if you think about a protein and how an animal would shed that protein or otherwise transmit it, it could be through saliva. It could be through feces, urine, um, grooming, right? From one animal to the next. Uh, it could be, it's shed into the environment, say on plants or in the soil. And then another animal uses that plant or comes in contact with that soil. And, and therefore the protein is transmitted to that animal. There's even emerging evidence suggesting that it, it, it can be transmitted in utero. 
And therefore, you could have dams that are that are producing fawns that are infected with the disease. So, so yeah, I mean, if you just kind of think about the way proteins work and without going into, you know, which is above my pay grade anyway, but but just in a general sense, proteins are extremely resistant um, in our environment. And so in this case, you have these these misfolded, misshapen proteins, and they they're resistant. They they stay in the environment for a long time. In fact, the the evidence thus far suggested. You know, kind of once you have it, you don't get rid of it. it. It's there. It's in the environment. It's extremely persistent. And therefore, you kind of think about it. Once it's detected, it's there. It's it's not just going to go away. Let me say, Steve, do you have it in your area? We do not have it in Georgia as of yet, but it's been found if and Mike, correct me if I'm wrong, it's been found some parts of Alabama, part of the panhandle of Florida, and then Tennessee. Yeah, it's it's pretty much surrounding us. I, you know, South Carolina hasn't had detections, and um, but that recent detection down on the panhandle of Florida is, you know, right across the state line from, from us. And, um, you know, if you're a pessimist, and I wouldn't say I'm a pessimist. I, I think maybe I straddle the line between pessimism and realism is that, you know, this, this disease is, is, is everywhere. I mean, it's, it's, it's there. And what we're seeing in some of the States that have detected it is, and this is, this is really interesting to me that in some populations, it doesn't appear the, the prevalence appears to be extremely low. So you 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 know you may detect one animal that has it, and then you test and test and test and test other animals, and you don't detect it. Whereas in other populations, you start you know you you detect it and you start testing, and you realize like one of the populations in Tennessee, one of the population in Northwest Arkansas, some of the populations in Wisconsin and Upper Midwest, you know you start you start detecting it and suddenly you realize that it's extremely prevalent. And that, that kind of parallels with some of the research that's emerging that's suggesting that there are some populations that genetically are, are appear to be more resistant to CWD. And that's, that's interesting as well. It's, that's something I think a lot of researchers will continue focusing on because it does offer you know, the suggestion that there are some populations that may end up being resistant to this disease. And even if it is detected, perhaps the prevalence will be extremely low. And that's, you know, that's a bright outlook. So what, you know, one of the easy things that people compare it to is obviously like mad cow disease or, um, or, or the, the biggest one is they compared it to scrapey because they, there's been some, uh, some have, put the, the theory out there that maybe cervids got it from sheep being mm-hmm. run around in those, you know, there's free range sheep, um, a lot in a lot of them are in Colorado. So that, so there's been sort of that theory out there and, and some people see the behavioral similarities between things like, you know, Alzheimer's and dementia. Mm-hmm. Wondered if you could just lay that out for, cause I mean, Alzheimer's dementia, those are usually from a plaque, but they're, uh, people associate a lot of those things to these type of things. Fill us in on sort of what we're looking at here and what the similarities and differences are just from an overhead view. Yeah. I mean, there are a lot of similarities in regards to, you know, CWD and some of these other neurological diseases, because, you know, like you, you mentioned Alzheimer's or, you know, there's Crutzfeldt Jacobs disease that, um, that's, uh, you know, hundred percent fatal. It, it, it's extremely rapid. Uh, CWD takes a little longer than some of these other diseases, but the bottom line is whether it's a, a misshapen protein or a plaque or the symptoms are, are very similar. You know, you, you have neurological degeneration, you know, the animal starts suffering neurological symptoms like um they waste away they 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 wait they they lose weight they 
start becoming listless. They appear out of it. They start making poor decisions. They start exhibiting risky behavior, you know, things that, I mean, I try not to like look at this from a human perspective, but unfortunately, you know, I, my father died of of Alzheimer's disease and and I watched him go through, you know, the progression of this of that disease and how it, you know it's 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 just awful. Um but you know, he he the things that he dealt with are very similar, you know, from a symptomatic standpoint, as you see in some of these services that are dealing with a different type of disease that ends up with the same symptoms. Gotcha. And and are there enough similarities between, let's say, scrapey and and we'll say mad cow as well, right? Because you mentioned uh, Crossfield Jacob disease, like which is the human, you know, that's the jump, right, from mad cow. Mm-hmm. Um. Are there enough similarities there to wonder if if cervids picked this up from sheep? I honestly don't know the answer. I mean, I think, and, you know, unfortunately, that's what you you end up with camps of thought, you know, with right. issues like this. And and it's that's a difficult question to answer because, as, as I suspect we'll talk about it, you know, these diseases, you know, infected animals for one, it, because of the symptoms, you know, some of these animals perish and we never know they were there. Um, you know, with CWD, you also have what we've clearly shown now is you, you can, for instance, we capture animals that are asymptomatic, meaning they're, they look fine. They, they look like a normal white-tailed deer and you test them and, they're, and they have the disease. You know, it, um, or we capture them, you know, one year and they don't have the disease. And then we capture them the next year and they do have the disease. And it, you just have to wonder, well, did they have the disease last year when we catch them, when we caught them? And we just did not detect it. And I suspect in a lot of cases that's that's true, um, which is another as you know that's a real issue this disease takes time to get to kind of get going and if you will i don't know if that's a good good term to use but it it does take some time for animals to become symptomatic therefore they're shedding this protein the entire time and that's a question right if 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 the protein is ingested meaning eaten on some level or, or brought into the body on some level for an animal to be infected with it, the protein has to reproduce, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, the, yeah. Basically. So it, is that is that still a question as to like what exactly, like what, how is this getting sort of inserted into the protein production inside of the body to create a protein at enough quantity to be an infection? Well, my, my understanding is we're, we don't really know why this protein starts this process of becoming misshaped. Um, we don't really understand that process and, and how it's, how it progresses, how it works, why it starts. Um, which I think that's one of the things with, you know, with a lot of these prion diseases is there's a, there's uncertainty on how does this actually get going? Like, how does, how does this process start and how does it progress in the animal and how rapid is it? And, you know, those those are very difficult things to study in my world because I do field research, I, you know. Yeah, yeah. And that's one of the things, you know, there's a there's a whole lot of research going on with CWD that's field driven. And then there's a whole nother line of work that's primarily lab based. I was going to say it's the lab work where it's like, OK, how do you synthesize this crooked protein? Yeah. And, and that, you know, that's a bit out of my wheelhouse. Um and I'm okay with that. Um, you know, I'm more of a, I'm a, I'm a field researcher and what, what I'm really interested in is how is this, how is this disease being spread? Like, yeah, how yeah. is it, you know, is it, are these animals? And, and, and I kind of look at some of the, the work in Arkansas, you, you have these really hot areas where there's a lot of prevalence. There's a lot of animals that have it. And then 
you have these embers, if you will, imagine like a fire where you, you know, an ember pops out and lands seven miles to the east. Well, how did that animal get there? It Did it disperse there when it was a year and a half old? Did it start becoming uh, disoriented and exhibiting, you know, symptoms of the disease and caused it to start behaving erratically, which put it seven miles away? Um, is it, you know, could we be seeing that, say, juveniles that are, you know, fawns that are born that have the disease, could they then be dispersing when they're, you know, six months old or a year old and transmitting the virus? I mean, the disease that way, it, there's just so many unknowns. Uh, are there certain landscape characteristics that are facilitating and actually moving across the landscape more rapidly? Are there some populations that are going to end up being, you know, like what we see in Northwest Arkansas, just really high prevalence, high morbidity, you know, low survival rates? Are there some populations that are just going to behave like that and CWD is going to quote unquote run its course? Um, you know, those are the things, at least in my world, a lot of us are asking ourselves and, and we'll see. I mean, we, we just need the research to be able to, to answer those questions. And unfortunately, you know, this was something that has come up in, in conversations. So you detect CWD, but you don't really know right out of the box where you are in the process. In other words, you could detect the disease and be at the very onset of it becoming you know, problematic in the population, or you could be at some, you know, some mile marker in the process and not know it. And I, that, that takes some time. You, you have to study those populations and kind of see where you are understanding, you know, it takes a lot of time and money to do these types of research projects. And the way this disease works, it you can't really, measure a population for a year or two and get the answer. You need more, you know, longer term data sets to be able to predict, okay, where, where are we in this process? So has this population, have we, do we think we've reached the point where a lot of the animals that are going to get it and die have died? And therefore we're kind of coming out of the, the trough, if you will, or, or are we 10 years before that point? There, there's a lot of uncertainty there, and it just takes time. And you know that being the case, what is the the most prevalent thought as to because because again, this is science, right? It is forming your best you know theory based on data that could be totally different two years from now, right? I mean, that's the nature of science is that it changes as you gain knowledge and data. What's are, is there a current pro, current prevailing thought as to what is causing this to spread? Well, I mean, obviously, you know, a, a logical route of transmission is just animals are interacting with each other and and therefore they're transmitting the disease just amongst themselves. And then as animals disperse, out of one population into, you know, other parts of the landscape. If they have the disease, then, um, then they can transmit it to a, another animal. And therefore you see these, you know, these broader areas where the, where the disease is, has been detected, not just say in one part of one County, but across five counties or 10 counties, you know, in a state. And the interesting thing is that, I mean, there are some areas where it's been detected and only a single animal has been detected or just a handful of animals, despite tons and tons of testing. Um, but if you if you kind of look at how it's transmitted and you think about it, it by default can be transmitted very, very quickly. If it's, you know, inter-deer transmission, then it could it could be transmitted very rapidly in the environment. So it could be just as much as one protein interaction, and it's done. It, it, well, yeah. I mean, if you've got you know you if you have 
And this is what this is what I, I think to me is is logical. You, you have you have animals that have the disease. They're asymptomatic. They're behaving normally, right? They're behaving just like every other deer in the population. And they are transmitting this disease to other deer. They're transmitting the disease to the soil, to plants. Um, and then by the time they're symptomatic, they've been living for, for several years because it, it does appear, you know, we're the, the deer that we are seeing die from CWD are mostly, you know, they're two, three, four years old. So they're, they're not say six months old. So they're living for quite some time and they're asymptomatic for some portion of that time. So they're just behaving like a normal deer. And that that's partially why this spreads so, so rapidly is because they're just behaving like themselves. And then by the time they're symptomatic, they've been living and trans, you know, transmitting this disease for, for some time years. And so when you say symptomatic or whatever, I mean, making sure that I have the, the sort of, the the terminology right and everything is it is it the fact that they get the protein into their body and then what the protein has to build up to a certain kind of i don't know say percentage amount but a certain count and go into cerebral spinal fluid into the brain but it has to causing neurological yeah yeah it's got to get into the body and be create and multiply to the to the point where it goes into the brain and And start yeah it's it's becoming degenerative yeah at that point is yeah. it being tested for in muscle tissue or in blood, or does it show up in muscle tissue or blood? No, we, I mean, it's most of the way we test. And I mean, as you, as you know, I mean, most States will, if they're testing, they're asking, they're asking hunters to nose and brain and yeah, the heads. Um, it can, we, we test through, a, um, in the field, we basically use a, a rectal mucosal exam that is, pretty good it's pretty effective at, at detecting the disease it's not perfect but it's you know it's it's the best we have available to us in the field that's not super invasive obviously you know obviously to the animal the ideal way to test for it is to have the the dead you know a dead animal um, yeah yeah so so is it the case that can you if, if i'm hearing you correctly though it takes a while for it to show up you're testing in the field, meaning that you've you've captured a deer. I don't know if you're tranquilizing or or we do. So tranquilizing it down, running a test. So is it possible? And and I mean, you're probably not going to know, right? But if I'm hearing you right, it's possible that when you're running these tests, deer have it. They're just showing up as negative. Yes, okay. and that's why when we when we write about our testing and our prevalence, it's positive and presumed negative because we, we don't know with certainty that the animal is negative. Perhaps we're just not detecting the disease, you know, when we, when we test the animal and we do, we do see that, you know, like I said, we, we test animals one year and they are presumed negative. And then the next year we recapture them and they are they're, They test positive. So we just have to assume they were negative the previous year, but we don't know that with certainty. They they could have been positive and we failed to detect it. So I, I think that's a good kind of time to take this into the, the next realm as it relates to, I mean, all of us here are outdoorsmen and deer hunters, right? So has it made a jump to, I'm going to say primates, um, because so, so they've been tests done with primates, right? But yep. they've, injected the, they've injected the protein directly into the spine and it took when it was injected directly into the spine. But then the, the counter to that is how often in nature is a protein injected directly into a spine, right? Like it's kind of a forced uptake of the protein. So the question that sort of everybody has on their minds is, is can it make the jump? Yeah, and, and there's there there have been conflicting studies or conflicting results. There there has been work showing that 
monkeys that were fed CWD, you know, meat from CWD infected animals could acquire the disease. Um, it wasn't foolproof, meaning it, that that occurred that result was not uniform across all all of the test monkeys, but it did happen. And then there's other research showing conflicting results that no, it you know it it, it wasn't transmitted uh, through consumption of the meat. And if you if you look, the bottom line is the CDC. Uh, recommends that if if the animal's positive, you don't consume the meat for for obvious reasons because there is so much uncertainty with 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 this question, and it's going to take time to answer that. In fact, to work with, and I I only know what I've read specific to those studies, but I do know there's other work ongoing that's similar, and it takes time to do these types of studies um, because again, you, you know, you're, you may be feeding an animal and then you're waiting to see, and you're waiting some time to see. Um, and, and you're and when you're talking with deer, you could have, let's say it did make a jump and it did infect a primate. Then you don't know how fast that infection takes to take place for the same things you just talked about, right? right. Deer right. For three, four years and not show symptoms. A primate could have it for like eight, nine years, and it doesn't build up, you know, enough to measure. So you're talking about something you might not have the answer to for a decade, right? Yeah, we don't know. Yeah. And it, again, it, it takes it takes time. And because of these issues, I mean, that's why that's why, the, you know, states where it's been detected and, and, and areas within states where it's been detected, the agency, you know, suggest that you test it, have the animal tested if you, you know, if you harvest one and then, you know, agencies have set up ways for doing that where you're, you know, you're, you're dropping off the head of the animal, you're storing the animal while, you know, while the tests are being conducted. And then if the animal is positive, you know, you're, you're advised not to consume the, the, the meat. And if it's, negative then you you move on uh as is so yeah and that you know i i'm not i'm not going to dismiss this as an issue certainly um i i i know this is it's relevant it's an important question i i look at this what really gets my attention as much if not more is what this does to the deer hunting community in the areas where it's detected and what, what it does to land prices, to, to land value, to morale, to participation, to license sales. You know, those are the things that I, I step back and I go as a deer hunter and a person that relies on funding agency funding you know we we as hunters we drive the ec economic engine that is the state agency when you know we buy licenses we participate in hunting and fishing and and i talk to hunters in some of these areas where this disease is is very prevalent and in some cases they don't want to be part of the process anymore meaning they don't want to, to harvest deer anymore. And that, that is a, that's really problematic to me. That it, it's, un, it's unfortunate. And it, that causes me a lot of pause because, and you know, we haven't talked about this, but you know, most States manage this disease using harvest. You know, a lot of States will say, Hey, we're, we're going to, in some cases, you see states liberalize harvest regulations, um, encouraging hunters to take animals in the, th the thought being that if you reduce density, then you reduce transmission probabilities amongst animals. Yeah, there's uh, well, they, they kind of go, some of the states go scorched earth as soon as it shows up, right? They do. Yeah. And, and there, there's not a lot of, you know, there's not a lot of evidence that that works, honestly. Um, but there's not a lot of evidence that anything works. 
So, and, well, I was going to, so, cause you and I talked originally and, and this is speaking more from a personal level, you know, it just hit Idaho and it happened to hit though ground zero in Idaho is the one draw and system that I've been hunting for like 10 years. So I just have really good taste. Um, but it weirded me out, right? Like, okay, do I want to hunt that area anymore sure. at all? And, and, and it's more from the perspective of, yeah, it's, you know, it's nobody's caught it yet. But for me, it's like, can I feed it to my son and look him in the eyes in 10 years? And if something happens, can I live with myself? And it's like that whole hunters go through that thing. But there's also the part where hunters play a very integral role of we're part of the game management plan and we factor in when it comes to wildlife populations. And so as I kind of went down the rabbit hole, we're talking about a protein that is brought in from being spread from animal to animal feces, uh, saliva. It's going to be on the ground anyways. So if, if it's the case where there's fear of that protein spreading to humans, I mean, there would be as much fear of the animal itself as you should probably have for the ground that you walk on at that point. Right. I mean, it could, it, I don't, I touch plants in the wild. I scratch my nose. I probably put my finger in my mouth at some point. Like there's fear of just the animal is probably too, too simple of a thing. Like it's a much more complex problem. It seems to me, I, I don't know if that's justified or. Yes. Yes. And, and that's one of the reasons that, you know, I'll, for instance, I'll give you a scenario when we, when we conduct these research projects and I can't speak for other groups of researchers, but I can tell you what my group has done. We purchase supplies, vehicles, everything. And it stays there, all of it. It stays in the, in the zone, in the CWD zone that the state, you know, basically um, delineates after they, they start testing because of what you just, what you just said, the thought of, you know, in my case, the thought of us shooting a rocket net over deer in one state and knowing that some of those deer have CWD and then bringing that net back to an area where it hasn't been detected and and then down the road discovering that it is you know it's there i i couldn't look myself in the mirror you know and, and whether it's boots and I'll, I'll give you another scenario i i have i have a client um who that i do consulting work with who owns property within a cwd zone and now granted his his property is quite some distance from where the closest detection was, but it is within the zone. And I would be lying if I said, I don't take precautions when I get out of my truck on that property versus other properties, whether it's the gear, the, the shoes I'm wearing, whether I, because I think to, to what you just said, that, that it's not just me interacting with the animal. It could be me interacting with the environment and that, you know, you don't want to be a doom and gloom person, but that is, that's something to consider, which is why we go to such great lengths in our field projects to not mix and match equipment, boots, gloves, nets, trucks, tires, you name it, anything that contacts the earth or an animal stays there. And, and to that effect, right, where, where you're talking, if, if someone looking at the possibility of giving up hunting altogether, and this is where I had to get to with my own head, is to, to give up that altogether because of a fear of this, this prion disease, it's only half the equation. If, if that's your fear, that's only half of what you should be looking at. The other half is like, well, then you should also not be going outside you, you will be interacting with this. Like it, that, I, that's it. I, I don't, I don't know if that makes sense, but I like, that's how I had to get my head around it. Like if I'm really afraid of this, like, yeah, I'm probably don't want to eat something that has enough load to show up as positive. But if my real fear is interacting at all with this, 
like, cause when I was out hunting, I watched my son bend down and pick up a deer pellet. And it just went through my head when I watched that happen. I was like, if I don't react to this, I can't react to other things mm-hmm. because chances are it was on that pellet. Right. Like, like, because it's in an area where it's been found and I watched that happen. And I was like, well, obviously now I got to watch him and make him wash his hands. And, but then is that too, you know, how, how, you know, paranoid is that? And, and is that really the right rationale? But, but I, in understanding and what you're saying about it, where it's a protein, it's all over the place, probably in, probably in feces, probably in saliva, then it's everywhere on the ground. And so there's a whole scenario to consider there. Like if there's real fear about that, you know, there's a lot more to be worried about in, in that scenario. And people have been around it and things have been relatively okay. Yeah, exactly. But you know, like one, like one thing, what you were just talking about is, you know, and without going down the rabbit hole of, you know, where we are in our society with whether, you know, whether it's trusting science or, uh, you know, this, we're talking about a disease here, not a virus, but, but there are similarities. I mean, that the skepticism, you know, the, the naysayers in the CWD community, that's one of the things that they will get brought up. Well, that, I was actually going to ask you something on that level is uh, you as a field scientist, are you part of a conspiracy to keep people from hunting and spread information and fear about a disease? I'm putting oh, you on the spot. Yeah, no, no, <laughs> no. I mean, I, I'm a deer hunter and this concerns me. This this concerns me. It can, and like we've talked about, it concerns me on many, many levels, not just could I get, you know, could I get this disease from eating deer meat? Could I transmit the disease through my activities? Could I, it, it, there's so many levels that this, you know, is this going to be detected in, in, in areas and affect real estate value and affect participation and and is that going to have a cascading effect on economics within a state and the and the agency's ability to to manage public lands and the, and the resources it, i think about this you know on many levels it if it were detected in the areas that i hunt would i change my behavior and if so would I, would something I've cherished my entire life be, be impacted that, that I have concerns on many levels. I'm not, you know, I'm not trying to spread fear. I'm trying to understand what this, what this disease is, how it's, how it's moving. Um, how, you know, what does it do to a population? How, how, how much of a negative is it? How much is it reducing survival? Um, how much is it negatively impacting a population? And can, can we predict that? Could we use the data that we have to, to allow other agencies to plug in information from their state and predict what's going to happen? Because if we can do that, then we know what the future looks like right now. We're, we're retrospective. We're, we're often looking, like I said, we don't know exactly where we are in the process when we detect this disease, but if we can collect enough information across the scientific community, then we can start predicting, which is that's what we're doing with the work in Arkansas. What's going to happen five years from now? What's it going to look like 10 years from now? Where are we going 20 years from now? And if we can start doing that, then we can really get our head around what what is the the playing field going to look like down the road if you have this disease in your area. So in your valley, you know, what's it going to look like 20 years from now? Maybe 20 years from now, it looks completely different than it does right now in a in a way that is sustainable and makes sense. Maybe it doesn't. We just don't know. Well, and so and just kind of, I wanted to jump in on what, what you were just talking about as far as and you know, bringing that up. There's a lot of disinformation out there. Um, one of the areas being sort of criticism of state management. You know, the government never manages anything well. They mismanage this and that's why it's happening. And if I'm hearing you, because when it first hit the area where I'm where I'm at, 
they went on a, you know, we're going to try to eliminate the surveys in that area just in case they're infected. And in my head at the time, it was like, okay, I, I could actually see that. You, you do the same thing with mad cow, right? Mad cow goes into an area, you, you eliminate the cows that could have been exposed and they move on. And then, but as the conversation goes on, the protein is in the ground. You cannot kill the protein. It doesn't go away at winter. It doesn't burn out with a fire. It stays. And so any deer that does ever walk through that area can get it. And so when, when you go into this whole thing of like how, how, how the States never manage anything right. And they just mucked this whole thing up. And that's why we have it. Is that really the case? Like, is there really a way that it can be managed at all? We don't know. You know, I mean, we, we don't really understand how to, how to manage this. And, and, you know, the naysayers and the conspiracy theorists, you know, that unfortunately in so many ways, that's where we are in our world these days. But the reality of it is, I mean, if you think about this pragmatically from an agency's perspective, their entire mission changes once this disease is detected. I mean, you, you go from allocating resources to, to, all parts of these wildlife divisions and, and these agencies to suddenly being in crisis mode where there's uncertainty, there's misinformation, there's public disdain, and there's because of the uncertainty, the agencies don't have an answer that's a foolproof answer, you know, they're because we just we don't know. And Therefore, you see, you know, kind of cynicism builds and and unfortunately it it creates camps like we've talked about, you know, some people that are OK, well, we'll we'll do what we what you tell us to do. And then there's some people that, well, you don't know what you're doing, so I'm not going to listen to you as a you know state agency. And and that's why we need the science. That's why we need something that. That you know, understanding that science is never black and white. It's always going to be gray. It's constantly evolving. And, and there are people in our society that cannot, uh, they can't accept that. That The fact that the theory, the theories do change as new. Yeah. It, it's difficult, right? Cause like you told me this year it was this and not like, you know, dinosaurs were lizards when I was a kid and now you think they have feathers. Like it's, there's the whole, yeah, it's it's hard to. You know, we don't trust you because the answer changed. Right, exactly that. Yes. Yeah, and and unfortunately, you know what's going on over the past few years with with COVID, and there's just so much skepticism about science in general, um, which is truly unfortunate. Yeah, it's because it, it's it's become politics and not science and politics. That's right. That's right. Politics doesn't fix a whole lot of things in the world, right? So it. You put science on the forefront of that, and it's 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 dragging science to a place where it doesn't belong, which is politics. Yeah, for sure. Um, so how is what are the ways that it has been managed that you're aware of? Like, you know, we we talked about scorched earth, kill all the animals, you get rid of it. But as we kind of just talked about, the protein doesn't. This is like an unkillable protein. You can't burn it, can't freeze it. Still going to be in the ground any deer eating the grass and that ground has the potential to get it. What are the, some of the other ways that it's being managed? It's primarily managed through harvest, you know, through either you see some States that do nothing. They just basically say, just, we'll just see what happens. You have Good some luck. States. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you have some States that, that tried to alter their harvest regimes. Uh, again, under the, the thought process that if we reduce density, then we'll minimize transmission amongst animals. You know, there are discussions in the, you know, in, in my circle that, you know, will this just run its course in some of these populations? And, and again, there is some evidence suggesting that maybe that, that is the case. Um, but again, we don't know where all these populations are in this process. And it, it just takes, it's going to take more time. And unfortunately, I think what you're going to see is you're going to see this 
continue to be detected in new areas over and over and over and over. Um, and it's just changing the way we do, we do business. Yeah. Steve, if you want to, let's check your mic, man. Destin, how's that sound? Hey, we got you back. What do you got? I don't know what happened. I hooked some speakers back up to my computer and I don't know if that changed some stuff or what, but uh, hopefully we got it now. No, we got it. And you, and for those of you listening, we've been watching Steve have a computer fight over here, and he's just having to listen to, to listen to us talk. <laughs> yep. So, I, Mike, I got a couple of questions. You were talking about the uh, uh, what y'all were doing as far as your when y'all were out, say in Arkansas, with your uh, equipment and so forth, and vehicles. So, let's say you have. Um, Hunters that fly from Georgia to well, whatever state might have uh, a, a deer population, an elk population, or whatever that has CWD, they get rental vehicles, use them during their hunt, take those back. You know, rental vehicles end up all over the place. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Uh, I mean, what are we looking at there? I mean, is there something we need to worry about? I mean, I, you know, I've rented vehicles from all over the country right here in, in Millersville, Georgia. Yeah. I mean, we, we don't know, Steve. And it, you know, from our perspective as researchers, we're just trying to be hyper sensitive, you know, the, and the way we are treating our vehicles and the way the gear is being stored, whether it's, you know, you, you catch deer in a net and then that their saliva gets on that net and then that net gets immediately put into the back of a truck, you know, over and over and over. Um, I, personally, I, I don't, when I go and rent vehicles, I don't think about that. Well, I, I'm, and I wouldn't have except for, you know, this toll. So, yeah, we just, we're just trying to be hyper, hyper vigilant and, yeah. And and try to leave everything that you know that we're using in these areas where the research is occurring, and again, not understanding exactly. You know, could you drive a vehicle into a food plot and somehow trans you know transmit this disease? I uh, I, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know that. All right. Another question. Um, so Georgia, it's not been found yet in Georgia that we know of, uh, but we do have surrounding states. Um, so what are states that have not had CWD? What kind of steps are they taking uh, to keep it from possibly getting in here, say like from, from hunters bringing, going out of state, and hunting and bringing mm-hmm. a, a, a part of an animal back. Um, and, yeah, a, lot, and, a lot of states have regulations, you know, prohibiting the importation of, of, um, for instance, meat that has bones in it, uh, full skulls, you know, that, that have, for instance, caping a deer out and bringing the entire head with the brain and brain stem and everything in it. Some states require you to have you know, you can only bring the antlers with the skull plate attached. Um, you see all kinds of variations across the United States if you look at at regulations. Obviously, you know, most states have have guidance on you're within the CWD zone. You're not allowed to transport deer outside of that zone to be processed or to otherwise be, you know, to be used. So there are a variety of regulations that states put in place to try to minimize the spread. Um, and I mean, just think about how daunting that is. I mean, you, you, so you have all these, for instance, you know, I'm sitting here and I have deer mounts all around me in, in my office. And some of these deer came from, Louisiana, some of these deer came from Georgia, some of the, you know, there, there's all kinds of animals here. And um, 
you know, think about how daunting that is from the standpoint of trying to manage hunter behavior. Um, oh, yeah. That's, it's just a, it's, it's, it's a, it's a tall ask, but, but to your point, yes, agencies have a, a number of regulations in place to try to minimize us from potentially spreading the disease ourselves through our own activities. Okay. Now, um, and I'm not sure what other states allow feeding of deer, being able to hunt over them and so forth, but, and I know that could affect it. Um, because you're congregating animals in, in one spot. Uh, but how much does feeding, and, and are there any anything better one way than the other? So like a spin feeder where the corn or whatever is being distributed spread out across versus trough feeders, gravity feed. Know. Yeah, we don't know. And, okay. and there, there's just so much uncertainty there too. And, you know, you see some states like, um, you know, some states will ban feeding within CWD zones, you know, where they've detected the disease. Um, and obviously their their logic and rationale is, well, let's not concentrate animals around each other. Um, but, you know, that's a that's a gray area, in my opinion, as well. I mean, you we plant forage plots to concentrate deer. Yeah, all the time, and so, it, and and I get, I've been asked this. I've had my, I've had buddies ask me this that that I, I'd say lean towards the conspiracy theory side of CWD, and and they're like, well, hey, you know, the agency's telling me I can't put a feeder out, but I can plant a food plot and all day long, and and I get it, I I I, I understand because I see. I see this through the lens of a deer hunter as well as a researcher and and I get it. I get those criticisms and I understand the 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 concern and and you know we and you you guys know this. We don't like to be told as human beings what we can and can't do. That's just the reality. <laughs> and when the government quote unquote tells us we can't behave a certain way, we don't like that. And I get it. I, I totally get it. Whether it be deer and CWD or hunting regulations in general, I, I understand. Yeah, I think it's one of those things where, you know, nobody likes, we all have obstinance to being told what to do. And when it comes from, you know, especially the way that things have been politicized, people push back and science gets brought into that. And what it, people have sort of lost this perspective that, there's people in the field like yourself and that there's scientists working in labs and everyone's trying their best to make the right decision. And then bureaucracy gets involved and things, you know, it's not like they make, everybody's trying to do their best and no one's ever going to get it right. <laughs> like it's That's right. right. And it has to evolve over time and they have to adjust and they have to, they have to progress. They have to make their mistakes and you don't know what you don't know. And when you're when you're on the back end of that and you just want to go hunting, you get ticked off really easy. Right. It's like, mm -hmm. I just want to do my thing. Why are you stopping me from doing my thing? And yeah, no, it's it, it, it's it's hard to have this conversation without jumping into the political side. Yeah. And, you know, I, whether it's we're talking about this topic or, you know, the last time we were talking about turkeys and hunting regulations and I use the term social license. And what I mean by that is, you know, we we need to give agencies some social license. We need to give them a little bit of flexibility here, folks. I mean, there's a lot we don't know here and they're they need to, to have enough flexibility to to make changes and to do things and to react the best way they they think they should based on the science if that's the route they choose to go and we need to give them enough flexibility to see how things shake out, understanding that we're not going to gain the answers to, to this disease next week or next month or next year. It's going to take more time, more study, more money and more frustration for us to get there, but we will get there. Um, it's just going to take, it, it's going to take time and we don't like that. I don't want, I don't want, trust me, 
Yeah, if I get the answer tomorrow, I'd sure as hell rather have it tomorrow than two years from now. But that's just yeah. not the way that that this these type these topics work themselves out. This is like we talked about. If you if you really think about how complex this disease is, it is it is it's easy to look at it and be overwhelmed mentally because it is so complex. But that should not imply we won't get the answers. We'll get the answers. I mean, it's, it could be everything from a minor shift in deer populations for a temporary amount of time until they gain like a herd immunity kind of thing. Yes. Or, or it could be the human zombie apocalypse, right? I mean, like there's a number of things. that My science eye says it's more likely to be the former. I sure hope so. I'd hate to have the, I'm not. As much as anybody prepares for it, no one's really ready for the zombie apocalypse, right? No, I I, I think what you're, we're going to end up seeing is that there are some populations that are fairly resistant to this disease. There are some populations that are not. And in those populations that are not, it's going to take decades for it to work its course. And when we come out the other end, we're not going to look like we did when we entered the gate. What we don't know is exactly what is that going to look like? And that's why we need more information, because if we come out the other end and we look slightly different than we did going in the gate, well, that's not that we can do that. We can we can we can react to that. It's what does that look like? That that's what we need to understand. And how long does it take us to get there? And what is our. You know, what's our herd going to look like as we're going through this process? That's what we're doing now, trying to predict that. Steve, you got any other questions? Well, I was just going to make a comment, and people can take this for, for what it is. You know, Mike, and you see it, and I'm sure you do, Mike. We've got a, we've got a lot of pseudo-wildlife biologists, foresters, land managers out there that just because they've managed a hundred acres, you know, uh, they think they can, they've got it all figured out. And and we're fighting that uh, as part of what you're saying, you know, let the agencies do their work and see, see where the cookie, cookie crumbles. Yeah. yeah. Unfortunately, that's just the way our society works that we, yep. they're armchair experts and, and that we'll never get away from that. I, I think, I think what I see in a lot of situations is people want to, they want to be informed. They, they want to understand what's going on. And I, I see this a lot in the Turkey world that once people are armed with information, they may not like the information. They may not like the answer. But as long as they're armed with information and they can they can kind of view that information and uh, digest it and, uh, and understand it, that as they get more and more and more information, they become knowledgeable to the point where they start thinking critically about it. And they may not agree with me or you or anyone else, but they're thinking critically about it. And as long as as we're all thinking critically and not jumping on bandwagons and being conspiracy theorists. And if we're thinking critically based on information that we're getting credible information, then we'll be fine because then we're, we're using sound information to make our decisions, understanding that our perspectives are going to be different amongst people, but we're all going to be armed with credible information. That's, that's kind of what I, that's why I do the job that I do. I want to try to provide credible information so that people can make decisions. I would like to just say on top of that, Michael, thank you for one, the work that you do and for the time that you've given us here today. Um, sure. It's not a problem. I enjoyed it. Um, yeah. I love the conversation, man. I, and hopefully we'll get to have you on here again, you know, talking about another topic. I, I, I love this. I, I could probably talk about chronic wasting disease for, you know, a couple of days, but. Um, no, no, thank you. 
I want to thank you and I want to thank you, Steve, as well, for joining us here today. Uh, I thought this was thank a great you. conversation. I, I think there's tremendous value in this for, for any outdoorsman or any hunter. So, yeah, for sure. This concludes episode number 73 for the National Land Realty podcast, discussing chronic wasting disease with Dr. Michael Chamberlain of the University of Georgia and National Land Realty agent, Steve Chapman. You can learn more about land ownership and the buying and selling of land at nationalland.com. 